Well, good morning and welcome to Hudson Institute. I'm Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. Uh, delighted uh, to see uh, so many folks here relatively bright and early for our discussion of uh, politics uh, in the UK. And uh, this is the first event that uh, Hudson Institute and the Henry Jackson Society are doing in an important new partnership that's going to look at uh, U.S.-U.K. relations, U.S.-U.K.-E.U. relations going forward. And it's, uh, it's, uh, this is the first of uh, what we hope will be many events here in Washington, some hopefully in New York, and many hopefully in London as well. So, uh, and it's uh, with great pleasure that I get to introduce uh, my old friend, uh, Alan Mendoza, who is the executive director of the Henry Jackson Society. Alan is known in London as a and here in Washington and, and around the world as an insightful analyst on UK politics, on uh, global affairs, and someone who in a very short period of time has built a remarkably influential British institution, and I call the Henry Jackson Society an institution because of its uh, very big presence in London, well known in uh, Westminster and to the British press. Alan did his, both his undergraduate work and his PhD at uh, Cambridge. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and uh, it's uh, oh, Alan and I were just together in Paris a few weeks ago for a very interesting Franco-German workshop at the French Foreign Ministry, which uh, gave us uh, some interesting insights into challenges that are being faced on the continent. But uh, I think uh, those of us here in uh, Washington are particularly puzzled by the current state of uh, British politics and British affairs and hoping that you could shed some uh, light uh, for us on uh, developments in your home country. Uh, as we look at uh, UK politics, I think there's a censor in Washington that uh, of, uh, people are at first bewildered since we, we look to our older elder brethren and elder sisters in the UK as a a model of um, in many different uh, arenas, uh, and in when as well as when it comes to global affairs, and there seems to be uh, almost a mood of downright despair when looking at uh, the direction of the UK today. And let me just first start this uh, conversation by asking you if that's a, a fair assessment. Uh, uh, how do you see things? Well, uh, Ken, firstly, thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to uh, be here in Washington, particularly on such a uh, beautiful November day. You come sort of expecting to freeze, and it's delightfully pleasant out there. You've even arranged the weather, which is uh, marvellous. Um, and indeed, to inaugurate this sort of series of uh, programming that we're doing uh, together. Now, the UK in sort of crisis, it's interesting you, you uh, look at it from that way, because living within it, we're so sort of buffeted by you know, sort of every week something new happening. We no longer think of it as a crisis. It's normality for us uh, in terms of the unusualness of what's happened. And I, look, I think you can date the current turmoil to the recent general election. Um, you know, up until that point, there was turmoil in the sense that obviously uh, the Brexit vote had happened. We uh, uh, were, were going into uncharted territory there, but we did have a government that appeared to uh, be in control um, of, of a process and was driving it forward. And now, I think the, the, the difference we have now is that given the inconclusive result of that election, uh, the fact that the government lost its majority essentially and is governing with a coalition, the fact that the um, opposition has, uh, as we like to say, its tail up, 
uh, in terms of um, the, the sort of progress it feels it's making, um, it means that every little thing in British politics becomes a major instance. So to give you a couple of examples of the last few weeks, we've had a cabinet minister resign, uh, having been essentially you know, hounded out of office for a series of meetings uh, uh, in Israel, which she uh, didn't declare. Um, and you had the foreign secretary, who of course was here recently as well, um, having been uh, well widely condemned for comments on an, an Iranian Brit who had, who's been detained in Iran, but he had said something unwise, perhaps that had, uh, sort of uh, they'd use as an excuse to increase her jail sentence. So these became major incidents because when the government has no majority, anything becomes a major incident in terms of. Uh, uh, political uh, instability. And of course, we've had the, the political sex scandals in, in, in London as well, which caused the Defence Secretary to resign. There are many other members of Parliament under conditions. So is this sort of sense of crisis on the one hand, it, it's there, and there's also a sense of um, uncertainty about what the governmental agenda will be going forwards, and people are just you know, looking for the next, essentially, crisis. They're looking for the next thing that will turn into a big issue, and we'll be talking about that. So I think what, what is the, the thing that could most change this is if, if the government can put forward a clear agenda as to what it intends to do. And I know it's been difficult, obviously, given um, you went into an election thinking you were going to win. Remember the polls at the start suggested there was going to be a landslide victory for the Conservative Party. It's difficult, I think, to come back from that psychologically. But the truth is the party is in there for five years, if it wants to be. It needs to develop a programme of government. The first opportunity I would you know, encourage people to watch is, of course, the budget, uh, which is uh, n uh, coming up next week. This will be the opportunity for the government to restore some sense of control over the process rather than events controlling the process. Thank God things are so different here in Washington. Of course. <laughs> I can see. We are united, <laughs> aren't we, in this way? <laughs> exactly. No, no. But uh, let me ask you about the internal divide in the, in the Tory party, which is... Uh, uh, we're reading about this battle between Hammond and, and uh, the, uh, the Foreign Secretary and Mr. Gove. Can you shed some light for us on what, what the deeper... Are, are these simply... Is this... What, what lies behind these, these personality clashes and what does it mean for the future of the government in terms of trying to get the agenda back on track? Well, and there are, two, there are two things that are going on here. The first is um, there remains a philosophical debate about uh, Brexit, and that can be divided into sort of three different camps, I think, within the Conservative Party. The first camp is the camp who say Brexit means Brexit, uh, it's going to be come what may, and they're the people who are currently, for example, pushing for um, a law change, a change whereby uh, Brexit, the date of Brexit or Brexit happening will be enshrined in law, essentially, to prevent any backsliding. And that's what you've seen this week, a little a mini crisis about that, because you've got 15 Tory MPs who apparently will not support that. And with a governmental majority that is under 15, you can do the mathematics on that and work out what that means. Um, and so there is this divide on philosophical. So the first set of the, the Brexit come what may. The second set are Brexit, yes, but we need to be tied to the European Union part of it. OK, so it's going to be very soft Brexit. If we have to go, that's what it should be. And the last set are people who are still not reconciled to Brexit uh, within the party. These 15 comprise, it doesn't seem a lot, but there are probably a few more as well who are, who are towing the line simply uh, for political purposes, but who would happily support this position as well. So there is an internal divide in the party. Now, when you consider that across the other parties, you've also got similar divides, it becomes curious as to where the government you know, kind of puts its line what it wants to put forward on this basis. Too much down one camp means that other people rebel on that. Now, it is true that in the Labour Party there are um, people who would support 
uh, a governmental move towards Brexit means Brexit regardless. But everyone's a bit uncertain about what that means mathematically. And you know, when you have a, a situation where you've got divides crossing party lines, it means that everyone's got to uh, be very cognizant of where individual members of parliament stand uh, when it comes to votes. I think what's interesting about this parliament, just as a side, is that it's a first time in a long time that what individual pa uh, parliamentarians do is mattering. And this is actually very similar. It's becoming increasingly similar to the US Congress. Here, your legislators have a lot of power, obviously, given the, the nature of your system. In the UK, historically, the executive, being the government, controls everything normally in the House of Commons, but things are breaking down on that. When you have no majority, things are breaking down. When you've got strong issues like Brexit, where people really feel that they can um, push uh, an item regardless of what the party leadership thinks, uh, that's also a problem. And there's been a breakdown, if you like, of discipline as well. So the notion we have, uh, we've historically had very strong whips, but part of this sex scandal issue has been that the whips knew of misdeeds and misdoing for a long time and, and didn't sat on it to use basically to blackmail members uh, to do what they wanted. And now that's breaking down as well as being seen to be a fairly um, uh, unpleasant practice. So you've got that going on in there. But that's only one half. The other half called it is that there is jockeying for leadership that still exists. So there is still a perception that the prime minister's place uh, will be for, say, two years, three years, but that she will not lead the party into the next general election. And therefore, you are having people um, putting forward, you know, essentially putting forward their case to be leader. Now, part of that will be tied to what their vision of, say, Brexit is. But part of it is also about trying to get into the public eye and to be seen to be the major players within um, the, the British political system. So the Hammond, uh, Gove, uh, Johnson spat is as much about who might be leader next, might I say, because the Prime Minister may go nowhere, of course, um, versus you know, a real ideological divide here. And no one, you're saying two to three years, so no one wants to push the government to a vote of no confidence nope. any time before. Absolutely before not. Because, and this is an important point, because uh, you would have thought that uh, the Prime Minister would have gone after the result, and indeed, there, there was a lot of talk about that, of course. But I think that the point was, firstly, the idea of having a leadership contest within this very contested two-year period of uh, Brexit negotiations you know, has caused everyone to, uh, to, to take a step back. But secondly, because there is really no consensus within the party about who would be the next leader, it would be quite a bloody battle, I think. And I don't think anyone particularly wants to do that. The third part being when what they would own, essentially, is a very difficult Brexit negotiation. So I think that sort of uh, has checked people's ambitions for now. But at the same time, if people are pushed too much by other members of the cabinet, you may see a challenge just emerge. Mm -hmm. It's been notable, for example, that until this uh, minister resigned, this uh, cabinet secretary resigned last, last week, um, that there had been really no resignations or no people being forced out of cabinet, even though people had done things that in normal times would have been stamped upon by the leadership. So there's been this conscious desire not to press people too much in case they turn into you know, discontents on the back benches. Very interesting. Well, let's, let's turn to the Labour Party. And, uh, you know, I guess... It's a much easier subject. Exactly. No, it's also an, an area of some bewilderment here in, in the United States. Here you have a genuine socialist, Jeremy Corbyn, surrounded by atrocities, by outright anti-Semites, uh, who came so close to being elected prime minister. That you would have thought that was a national wake-up call and... So, you know, but things haven't changed. His popularity continues to remain relatively strong. Where, where do you see Labour heading? Where do you see Corbyn heading? Well, this is a this is one of the curiosities of British politics today. I mean, here you have a situation where uh, somebody who was regarded 
even by his own colleagues, as uh, essentially a, uh, a joke as a leader. He was expected to uh, be a disaster, turned into someone who got 40% of the public vote in the election. Now, it is true that he didn't come, he didn't come close to being prime minister. If you look at the uh, electoral arithmetic, he was a long way away. But 40% is a significant total. I mean, we're talking Blair levels of, uh, of support for the Labour Party uh, that, in that kind of way. And that, not Michael Foote, which is what we all no. are here. No, but that, no, but every, every, look, the Labour Party themselves thought that. Look, Corbyn's genius has been, essentially, to be himself. His genius has been simply to be himself at a time when people out there crave authenticity in politics and don't like sort of the, uh, the machine politicians in this way. They've gone, this man believes in something, even if I don't understand it or believe in it myself, I'm going to give him support because he looks like he believes in something. The second part of this is, some of the things that he believes in are genuinely popular. So when he talks, for example, about the financial crisis having led to inequality, having led to a, an issue of sort of social justice being undone, he's probably not wrong about that. There, there have been inequalities. We've seen all the repercussions in our society, in the UK, your society here, how that plays out. It's part of the reason why Donald Trump won your election as well. So he's tapped into a rich sort of vein of ideas and the things he's pushing for, you know, ending austerity, um, looking at supporting public services more, hit the mood of the times. Mm -hmm. So he has tapped into some popular moments. Now, what is interesting is that people have ignored uh, some of the you know, less uh, sort of friendly versions of his policy. So, I mean, it's extraordinary. The Labour Party conference, you know, the shadow chancellor say to uh, people there that Labour is preparing for a run on the pound were they to be elected in government. So they've essentially acknowledged that there's no confidence in their economic policies and that they will you know, deal with this. But it doesn't matter because we'll do all these other good things. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't quite add up in terms of people's perceptions of the good you know, and the bad. And of course, they're also ignoring, unfortunately, um, his foreign policy views and his views on things like extremism, as well as, the, as you mentioned, the crisis of anti-Semitism within the party, which shows no signs of abating. It's, I mean, a weekly event now, you were discovering Labour candidates in various places who are anti-Semites publicly saying things that you just wouldn't believe could be said in British politics in 2017. Extremism as well. You've got a case where a couple of weeks ago uh, we had exposed a, a group called MEND, which had been a, a group working within the Muslim community, allegedly uh, quite moderate. But once you start looking at the statements that uh, uh, leaders in that group uh, had made, you realise that they had uh, been supportive of Sharia law, they'd been supportive of... Um, uh, British troops being killed, you know, anti-Semitic comments. Most MPs, once this happened, ran away from this group. Jeremy Corbyn not only embraced them, but attended an event and spoke publicly at them. So you, you wonder how this works and how people are prepared to ignore one part and not the other. But in a sense, part of this is the government's fault because the government has ceded the ground to him. They've allowed him to make the political weather. He's taken advantage of it. He's not a brilliant politician, I don't think, but he is you know, absolutely clear about what he stands for and about the way he does it. I will say one thing. He's very popular with the young, incredibly popular with the millennials, um, who came out in a large way to support him and who see the message of hope he provides, essentially, that things can be better tomorrow as being a good thing. In fact, he's the only politician I can recall in recent times who, hasn't, who has a chant. 
There's a chant that when Jeremy Corbyn goes to public events, people chant at him. I won't do the chant because it's a bit, a bit sort of uh, early in the morning for that. You need a beer normally to do it. But, um, but it, it, it's a ch very few Anybody politicians. Anybody else want to try? <laughs> but very few politicians have a chant, yeah. you know, where people greet them on stage or with their name in a certain, you know, kind of way. So it's clear he's tapped into something. But once you start looking at the whole of what the party represents. Mm. I, I can't see them winning an election, but I can see them still causing sufficient damage in terms of voting and in terms of how this works to deny the Conservatives a majority. But mm. the Conservative response to that has to be, let's put our own agenda forward. Let's look at something positive that gives hope to people who want change in this regard um, and show that we are the people who can deliver that better than the Labour Party. Uh, yeah. And there was, there, was, there was some sense, at least in, in the U.S. press, particularly the Wall Street Journal, was quite critical of the Conservative Manifesto going into this election. Well, the Conservative Manifesto was an unusual document. There were some good ideas um, within it, but I think it showed the hallmarks, unfortunately, of um, something that was put together without proper uh, planning for an election that no one thought they would have. Now, you might well ask, well, hang on, the Prime Minister called the election. Didn't she have all this in order? And the answer is no, it appears not. So, it, you know, in retrospect, they but they didn't. You see, they didn't, they didn't want to leak that they were going to think of an election. So you have all this: the advantage of surprise versus a need for planning. But I think it was put together in in haste. Uh, it didn't have a coherent vision uh, behind it. It's been widely, of course, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, condemned over time. And the people who wrote it, of course, have have, uh, have ended up, you know, uh, leaving office essentially. And some good one, one, the MP who was behind it uh, lost his seat, unfortunately. Um, you also had the case, obviously, of uh, the chiefs of staff having to leave. So the people who put it together, um, I think, recognized what had happened. And uh, let's put it this way, they wouldn't put such a document together again um, in another election. But I think if you look at that election, almost everything that could have gone wrong did go wrong for the uh, Conservative Party, which gives, I suppose, some hope that that wouldn't happen again for the Conservatives in another election. You have to have a particular confluence of events uh, to have everything go wrong. We know that sentiment for some people in this country <laughs> as well. They can do it. I mean, you know, yeah. a lot of, look, as you know, look at your election here. A lot of this is, part, part of it is the person who wins, but part of it is the person who loses. loses yeah, exactly. Let, 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 let me ask you one quick question about the future of Blairism. Does it have a future within the Labour Party? Then let's talk about Brexit, and then we'll open it up to questions. Well, that's an interesting question, because there probably is a future for Blairism, but whether it is in the Labour Party or not is another matter. Mm -hmm. I think what people have to understand is that what's happened to the Labour Party is that because of an obscure rule change back in 2014, where they allowed anyone to join for £3, basically, which is a tiny amount if you can think about it, um, that meant that, that the nature of the Labour Party changed. People coming in uh, were far more left-wing than the people who'd been members for the previous decade or two decades. They have now become the majority of the party, as has been seen by the fact that in two separate leadership elections, Jeremy Corbyn, the hard-left candidate, has won with very convincing majorities. So he represents the Labour Party today. There's no question. It's not that he's taken over the Labour Party. They were allowed to join because of a rule change. They joined, unsurprisingly, and he represents the view of that party. Now, you can only really see, but there remain, of course, many moderates within the Labour Party, um, people who voted against him, who don't support him, but who have felt that they have little choice now but to go along with him because the party has essentially uh, you know, backed what he said. The problem those moderates face is that um, because the Labour Party is a very constitutional party in the sense that everything is done through committees and through rules, so you have numerous internal committees uh, who have elections at various times, 
Over the last year or two, those elections have steadily been going the hard left's way. So you now have hard left supporters of Corbyn controlling the key organs within the Labour Party. And that may mean that they will start doing things like um, putting through measures like mandatory reselection of sitting MPs. The Labour Party has a, a rule that if you're a sitting MP, you automatically go through to contest the next election. That means it doesn't matter who you are, hard left, soft left, you know, even right in, in politics. It doesn't matter. You can go through. The dream of the hard left has always been to have what's called mandatory reselection. Because if you have mandatory reselection, it means the MP has to put themselves forward in a primary, essentially. Okay, and the members, the local members, get the opportunity to vote he or she out. Given how the membership has changed to be a hard left membership, it stands to reason that if you had mandatory reselection, um, you end up with the moderates losing out and being kicked out. I recall it was very interesting when they did this, this big change, you had thousands of people join the Labour Party has been a massive success with its three pound measure in terms of political mobilization. It is probably the largest political party in the free world right now in terms of members. Hundreds of thousands of people have joined it and become members of it. But you, when you start speaking to the people, you begin to realize they didn't join necessarily for the right reason. So a moderate Labour MP friend of mine said he had a thousand new members join his party in the period of a few weeks. So he went along to a new members meeting and he asked, so what was it that inspired you to one of them? What inspired you to join the Labour Party? And the guy said to him in return, yeah, to vote you out. <laughs> so, which is telling in this sort of way. But that's a, that's a problem they face. So Blairism in the party is a dirty word. Blairism outside the party, in terms of what it represents, could still have a future. But one of the other strange paradigms of British politics is that there is no middle ground in British politics at the moment politically, because the historic third party, the Liberal Democrats, have been you know, kind of kicked into non-existence, essentially. Uh, they have you know, no, under 10 MPs. Uh, they are not seen as a serious force in policy making. So the idea that another group could take this at the moment is very difficult. Uh, Blair himself still exists, but his pronouncements are taken more seriously outside the UK than in the UK for various reasons. Um, but th at, at some point, the question has to be whether moderates in the Labour Party stay within that party if things continue on their current trajectory, or if they do what they did in the early 1980s and form a new social democratic Blairite party. The problem they face is history shows you that doesn't work. So what do you do? Interesting. Now, Blair, his uh, former prime minister, has his pronouncements, he's, he, he's, he has spoken out against Brexit. It's been quite interesting to see. And given the, the fact that the, the vote was so close at the referendum, one would have thought there would have been a greater groundswell around the ideas that he's enunciated. I uh, wanted to get your sense of uh, where you think uh, Brexit is heading. Is it definitely happening? There, is there growing skepticism towards it? Uh, yeah. So all these questions are ones we debate daily in, 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 uh, in the UK right now. So uh, Brexit is happening in the sense that we are engaged in a process of negotiation with the European Union to uh, carry it out. So we have a, if you like, a legalistic constitutional process which is going on and uh, which, to be frank, is not making much progress right now because uh, the Europeans um, and our negotiators are having all kinds of fun and games on things like the divorce bill, um, before we even get to some of the practicalities of what Brexit looks like. Um, now, we've been promised at numerous occasions there'll be progress this month, progress next month. Well, it's you know, mid-November already. Um, we are now down to a year and a bit, aren't we, in terms of, of the timings. No progress happening here. So at some point, on, a, on that constitutional legal point, we're going to have to get real about 
what's going on and either start saying we're preparing for a no-deal Brexit because there's just not enough progress to get us to the point in time that we can have a deal, in which case we have to do a whole host of things. Uh, and by the way, that, of course, may provoke the Europeans into negotiating seriously. Or um, we end up with con concessions from Britain. And it will be British concessions if, that, if we want to progress those lines. So a large divorce bill matters in that way uh, to, to get to a place where we can have a negotiated deal. Now, I think both of those are politically difficult. Um, and, we'll, and both those will call into question whether Brexit will actually happen. I think it's notable, you, uh, you mentioned uh, that we'd attended a European conference. I thought it was fascinating the number of Europeans who came up to me and, and you and we were together saying, we don't think Brexit's going to happen. In fact, we're betting on it not happening. And in fact, part of the reason that we are being so tough in negotiations is to make sure that Brexit doesn't happen as well. And you can see their line of thought. You can see what they're thinking. They, they're thinking, let's go into the negotiations in a tough way. We'll make it so unpalatable for the Brits to leave that when they actually realize what the end deal looks like, they will hold up their hands in horror and say, we can't do this. We're going to go back and do the, Euro the usual European Union thing of we'll vote again and it'll be all right in that kind of regard. Now, the funny thing is, although six months ago I wouldn't have thought this strategy could work, I'm beginning to think that there is a possibility that strategy might work because... The Brexit vote was a conceptual vote. It was a vote where people were asked, look, do you want to stay in or go out? They weren't particularly pressed on what out would look like. They weren't given a sense of this is what out looks like, this is what you're actually voting for. In my mind, therefore, there's going to be a moment when we actually understand what out will look like. And at that point, there may be a reaction from people saying, well, that's not what I wanted. I didn't want this, I wanted that. And at that, that will be the interesting point of potential departure. So I reckon we're probably a year away from that right now. Mm. I think at the moment it proceeds. People are, uh, you know, concede to that. The question then comes, are they prepared to buy the end deal? And that is a moment of maximum peril, if you like, for Brexit at that moment, whether people are prepared to actually carry through with the convictions that were shown in the referendum or whether they will turn their, you know, turn their hands in, in a different direction. Now, it could be the House of Commons rebels, essentially, um, and decides it's going to take the, uh, the responsibility of not going out or of changing the period. Or we may have an indefinite transition period, which would mean we stay in the EU essentially uh, you know, without any power, but we stay there forever in, in that kind of way. Um, but that becomes a possibility then. Now, I don't think the Conservative Party can deliver that. I think the Conservative Party will not go down that path. It will try and push for Brexit because it wants to represent the 52% who voted out. And of course, you say it was a close vote, it was a close vote, but nobody really who voted for the EU on the Remain side did it out of love and out of a great sense of you know, conviction. A lot of people there have, have made their minds up that Brexit is not such a bad thing. And again, it will depend on that end deal as to whether they, they will change their minds on that. So maybe you've probably got maybe 60 to 65, even 70% of people going, we're, we're heading in this direction, it's fine. But the balance could shift if in a year's time it looks like um, either there's a no deal happening or a bad deal happening. And the, the tougher the EU desires are, that 70% number, that number, you would think it would go up in some ways. Is that the frustration with Brussels? Yeah. Uh, you, you, there is that sense, of course, that, that, that you know, whenever Juncker opens his mouth, that's another percent for <laughs> people who want to leave. You know, whenever you see the chaos of, uh, of the European Union in action, people go, what, what are we still doing here? We need to just get out of here. It is true that the European you know, tactic will could backfire, but I, I think that, that there's that balance. It is, at what point do people go, either out of sheer bloody-mindedness, we're just going to leave regardless of the deal, or do they go, um, there is a bad deal here, we need to rethink this. 
I don't know the answer to that because it's dangerous to make predictions even a week in politics at the moment, let alone a year's time. Yeah. Um, and we've seen you know, the political breakdowns I mentioned being problematic within this. So I think we have to understand a little bit better what the deal is before we understand also how people react to that. Very insightful. I've had you mentioned. I could go on. I could talk all day and sit back and listen. This has been absolutely fascinating. Let's open it up to questions from the audience. Please keep your questions brief and uh, identify yourself or, and the organization you're with. Thank you. Yes, sir. Who is Henry Jackson? Oh, well, it's a great question. Americans will recognize the name. It's Henry Scoop Jackson, the former uh, Democratic senator from uh, Washington State. So uh, that should give a little sense. You may wonder, why is there a British organization named after him, right, is the thing. So uh, when we were conceiving the idea of what we were doing sort of 10, 15 years ago, it was at the time of the Iraq War um, when there were questions being raised, obviously, about the nature of what foreign and security policy should be in Britain, what it should be in the US, and what were the values that underpinned that. And there was also, if you recall, a, um, a tremendous antipathy to Americans. If any of you uh, uh, were traveling to Europe at the time, you'll remember the reaction Americans had uh, in, in various places because of the Iraq war. So we felt it would be an interesting and useful endeavor to find uh, an American political figure who may not be the most famous person, but actually um, marry together some of the themes that we wanted to promote in our uh, transatlantic working. So, for example, if you look at Jackson's career, it was someone who was an ardent, if you like, strategic Cold Warrior, someone who understood the importance of a strong defense, who understood the need for the US to lead in international uh, politics, to bring a coalition of allies together with that, and to face down the Soviet Union, because he accepted that this was a major security threat at the time. So he was obviously a big supporter of uh, military um, uh, growth and the need to block the Soviets in that respect. But he understood something crucial as well, which is as true today as it was then which is that the Soviets actually posed a moral threat as much as a strategic threat to our system. If you look at the communist system, it was designed to be exactly the opposite of whatever we were doing. So all the freedoms we held as dear and as true, they did not. Uh, human rights were uh, you know, a bythought for them, and indeed they were a persecutor of people rather than uh, an empowerer of them in that way. Uh, their, their economic system was entirely different to ours in terms of how this wanted. But crucially, they wanted their system to dominate. It was an expansionist ideology that wished to overtake what we were doing and replace it there. So what he wanted to make sure was that there was an understanding of the moral dimension. So if you recall in the 1970s, detente was the, uh, uh, the policy of, in vogue. The problem with detente was it, is that it normalized the Soviets. It normalized them as partners, and it normalized them as people to do business with. And Jackson's position then was, we can do trade if we must, but we need to tie that to human rights advances, and we need to always remind them they are not morally equivalent to us. And in today's world, there are a host of dictatorships, autocracies, others, who we may want to do trade with, we may want to even partner with in certain cases, but we must never make the mistake of thinking they are moral equivalents of our systems. Because the minute you do that, it's the minute you cede, if you like, the superiority of what we have accomplished as societies and allow them to gain that sort of credibility they shouldn't gain. They, they can only gain that credibility if they become liberal democratic societies in, in that view. So we want to push that forward as an idea. We want to send a message to Americans that actually here are people in Britain who valued American support. The other thing Jackson was known for was bipartisanship, you know, in terms of how he would work with Republicans, being a Democrat across the aisle on key issues, and we'll bring that together. And that's something we wanted to impart mm -hmm. in our approaches as well, basically, which was that here you have 
okay, um, ideas that should be able to cross party lines. It shouldn't be uh, simply the preserve or the left or the right, but it should be done together. And I tell you what's most interesting is getting people coming today, US people coming uh, to London and speaking at us, Almost invariably, they start their conversation with, I wish we had more Scoop Jacksons in Washington politics today because it's so divisive today. And that, I think, is an interesting message to take forward as well. Are you thinking of opening a branch here? Well, this partnership is a good opportunity to, to extend our work here. But you know what? I mean, the idea, obviously, of doing more things here is appealing because of that nature. We have a very good record of bringing American politicians and others to speak in. And we had Terry McAuliffe last week. We had Jay Johnson a couple of weeks beforehand. We've had you know, numerous Republicans as well at various times. It's good to have that cross-through, that play-through of Americans and Brits working together as we used to do on a more institutional level. And that's something that we're obviously looking to do together uh, to bring that, uh, that element back to our politics. And, it, and it's just why this is a big program for us. And Craig Kennedy, who is the former head of the German Marshall Fund, now a senior fellow here, has been quite engaged in getting this off the ground. And it, we are really looking forward to this partnership, uh, both on programming and on research, to build the kind of cross, well, the, to work to, on U.S.-U.K. ties at this critical moment and also on cross-partisan ties, uh, which are sorely needed in both uh, your parliament and our Congress on an array of critical issues. Mm -hmm. And we view the Henry Jackson Society as our moral equivalent. Excellent. That's what we like to hear. Dr. Medado, thank you very much for a very, very interesting insight. Uh, my name is Valeria Yegisman. Uh, I work currently as an independent consultant. I just moved from London to DC, so I feel like really um, deeply engaged and, and um, um, I worry about um, Britain. So my question is, um, there are recent concerns that Russia might have interfered into the uh, Brexit uh, referendum as it did into the US election. So uh, do you think, uh, if Russia did interfere, do you think it could lead to a second referendum uh, on Brexit? Thank you. Well, it's in, look, the, the notion of Russian interference is, is rife, of course, uh, across European and US sort of uh, um, ideas right now. I mean, the Russians have been interfering. There's no question about it. In the Brexit case, did they, did they interfere sufficiently to, uh, to change people's minds? Okay, some of these, you know, these uh, sort of tweet factories and social media armies that go out there, you know, might have had an influence. But I don't think anyone would seriously say that um, it, those tip the balance on that. I, I mean, I think in general there are problems of social media and politics today where people only see the kinds of things they, they, that they want to see. Um, you know, the, the interference... Is it going to lead to people thinking that the vote was skewed? I don't think so, because I, uh, we had numerous polls since then. And I was saying the percentage who want Brexit has increased, not decreased. So it wasn't a sort of aberration at that moment in time. And I don't think actually fundamentally that was, a that, that was what actually tipped the balance. I think the problem that you saw, the issue you saw in the Brexit referendum was one side had a clear message, i.e. things would be better if we left. And the other side, the Remainers, didn't have a good message, which was it's kind of OK now. Let's not ruin it. So hope was on the Brexit side. Hope normally wins you know, elections or referendums. And whether the Russian interference you know, may have tipped a slight balance, perhaps. But I don't think anyone would seriously say that this would be a, a major factor. I think what's more interesting, actually, on the Russian front is now the in beginnings of investigations into funding, uh, Russian connections of funding into British politics. Um, that's a, you've started to see some debate about that and some interest in uncovering some of the ties between various political groups in Britain and Russia. 
if that becomes more of an issue, that could lead, I think, to a bigger uh, crisis and scandal. And may, again, you won't see a referendum rerun on that basis, but I think you could see uh, law changes about how um, about how issues start to be presented within social media and beyond. I note, for example, that you know there's a big debate right now here about you know political ads, who paid for them uh, on social media. It'll be interesting to see if you guys can actually move that debate forward, because if you do that, I suspect that we will do that as well, and we'll begin to get some transparency in terms of who is actually behind some of the political adverts you see on social media, which of course are not regulated at all compared to what you see on TV and radio. On the purpose. You use the phrase no deal Brexit. Is that even possible? And what would it look like um, in terms of, for example, migration or um, financial relationships or trade? Well, again, that depends on who you talked about what no deal looks like. So, I mean, the, the general principle is that uh, if you have no deal, what you do is you say, we're not paying you any money. Goodbye with that. Uh, so we'll keep our billions. Thank you very much. Uh, in return, we understand that you will impose tariffs under WTO rules. We get that. That's going to have a uh, impact upon, obviously, um, you know, some of our uh, industries and, and and what we are doing import and export wise. We make it doesn't, by the way, mean necessarily we'll have no deal on anything. It may be that on certain. I mean, look, if you took this to its ultimate extent planes wouldn't have landing slots anymore because of the deals that you're getting in terms of uh, the European Commission on that kind of basis. I don't think we're talking necessarily about literally we just walk out with nothing. Um, but but it, is, it is a good question. That's why if you're serious about no deal, as some in the governments are, you need to start outlining what no deal looks like. What will it actually look like? What does it mean in terms of the trade? What industries will suffer? What will benefit? Who, who's going to pick up the slack uh, that happens when you've got a tariff adjustment, and that means that things are going to be much more expensive, or you can't export as much as before. These things have to be thought about now, not on the 31st of March 2019. And on you know migration, again, the, the question is simple. What, do you simply shut the door then? Is that what's going to happen? Uh, by the way, the whole migration debate in Brexit is fascinating, because what people don't appreciate is that a majority of migration into Britain is not European migration. It is extra European migration, which theoretically we control already. Okay, just understand that. So every year we have roughly 600,000 people coming into the country um, and 300,000 leaving. What's interesting about that figure is that it's over half of that is extra-European migration, which is subject to a very strict uh, visa regime, but clearly not that strict if 300,000 people are coming in uh, every year for that, basically. Um, and the other, the European bit is you know, visa-free in that. What's interesting, the people exiting are mainly Britons and Europeans, however. So you are getting a demographic change within society of extra-European com people coming in and European people leaving. Now, if you, if you, if you slam the, shut, you know, the, the door shut on European migration straight away, do we just not have migration? Uh, what, what does it mean? Or, or do we increase the number of extra-European migra migrants coming in? I'm not sure that would be very popular, to be honest, because I think much of the antipathy uh, towards immigration within the UK is not towards European immigration, but towards extra-European immigration. Um, so that is another question. And people who want no, a no-deal Brexit have to answer what that looks like and what it means for, um, you know, again, uh, services in Britain, and primarily services. What does it mean for national health service? What does it mean for, you know, kind of service industries? Because if you, I presume most of you have been to London, right? Try finding a British person working in a restaurant or a hotel or that kind of, seriously, try finding it. You are not gonna find a British person working in, in London in, what, in that area. 
So what, what happens? What overnight? We're just going to change that? There's a lot of questions. It, it's the right question to ask. What does it look like? And you know, people who support it need to start coming up with answers in order to do that. Hi, Alan. That was a very interesting and uh, Ken. Um, I just want to follow on a little bit from that. The Brexit campaign really was the beginning of this, I thought, meltdown in British politics because it was a lazy campaign. It was um, on the Leave side. But it may be deliberately lazy because there was a Project Fear that they kind of had in the background. And if anybody would have actually explained at the time how many institutions, what the whole 40 years of being involved in the EU would have meant to leave it, and how involved we really were in the EU, a lot of people would have put through their hands out in horror and said, this is a stupid referendum because we can't vote on this. It was deliberately designed to try and save the Conservative Party, to, to hold them together, which in the end it hasn't really done. It hasn't held the country together. And because now you've got David Davis running around saying things like, you know, there's 98 bits of paper we have to have that'll tell us the economic impact, and guess what? They haven't either done them or come up with them because they know every single economic impact is a negative for the UK. You can't equate 50% of our exports to Europe with trying to sell a few things to New Zealand because we're going to sell to New Zealand anyway if they wanted the stuff in the first place. They don't want our cars anymore. You know, we sell Bentleys, Jaguars, Aston Martins. You know, we don't sell cheap cars. And the things that they really need, we can't replicate it and we can't replace it. So we can have an economic meltdown of the most incredible level. But the government don't want to tell you that because if they tell you that, then the whole thing turns into a complete disaster. So they're all flishing around, messing around on the peripheries, trying to keep this thing together, and it can't actually be brought together. So you, you're not going to have this Brexit the way that we can't walk out, because we can't walk out of loads of things. We just can't walk out. And when that stupid bus was running around, actually, and the question is, can you, you're going to have another referendum. We're going to have something, in my opinion, because it's just economically too disastrous. It, it, it's possible, like I said, we may have another referendum. Look, I, you can walk out. You can. You can do anything. You can do. It would be, it would be, I think, catastrophic if you walked out and had nothing planned. I mean, absolutely catastrophic. That would be the moment when everyone would flee for the hills at that moment if there had been no planning for that purpose, which is why, if you want no deal in that sense, you've got to plan now and explain how this looks so that there is a viable prospect of it. I think nobody denies, even uh, the most ardent leavers deny, that there will be an economic hit in the short term for leaving the European Union. And there has to be because of just the institutional way that we have woven in over 40 years in a trading process in that way. What is you know, more interesting is a longer term uh, view of whether you are tied to a European trading bloc that's ultimately declining as a force internationally or whether you can do more things independently out there. And that's a, that's a debate. It's a debating point. But there is at least you know, a school of thought and indeed economic, economic you know, economists to actually look at this who believe that longer term, it is better to be out of the EU. Now, is the price worth it? That's a question people have to look at.
But to go back to the point of your question where there'll be a second referendum, I go back to my what I said earlier about when the contours of the deal or no deal become apparent. At the end of next year, the government is going to face a very interesting choice because I'm pretty sure the Labour Party will oppose whatever is put down. So you will have a body in Parliament that will say, no, the Liberal Democrats will oppose it, Scottish Nationalists will probably oppose it. So it will require the government to push through Brexit, I think, with a few rebels here and there. If the deal is truly as bad as you, know, you suggest, then it may, there may be a, a school of thought within the Conservative Party that says, we cannot own this. We cannot own this ourselves. We have to let the people own it. Just as, just as the Conservative Party could never have done Brexit without the referendum vote. It had to be the people deciding that. Okay? So maybe there will be a second referendum. I, th I say this purely just in conjecture because it looks politically like that could be an option. However, who knows? I, it'll be difficult, I think, for people to argue against a second referendum once a deal is known because it's something specifically being put down and um, you, people have a say on that. But again, as you know, historically, there's been an antipathy to referenda in Britain for the very reasons that you've suggested, because some issues are very complicated and to put them to referendum doesn't make sense. But we did it for this, so maybe we'll do it again. Let me ask about the coalition partners, the Unionist Party. Where, do, where, where would they stand in a vote like that well, in terms of the, the vote inside Parliament? Well, their, their most important issue is to uh, maintain a soft border with the Republic of Ireland, because that's a big issue in Northern I Irish politics. Okay, so as long as any end deal has that or an element of that that is acceptable to them, they, I think, will support uh, whatever the, uh, the, the, the government pushes through. I mean, they, they are a, a, a Brexit party, mm -hmm. uh, but they do want this sort of particular uh, issue locally uh, to be resolved. Now, you have to understand there is a difficulty in this. If you have a soft border with the Republic of Ireland, how do you then have a hard border anywhere else? Because unless you're proposing to have checks between Northern Ireland and the mainland, which the DUP will not want, because that would signify that Northern Ireland really is a foreign part of the UK, how do you stop migrants from coming in? So that, that, hasn't, been, that hasn't been answered either. So there is a, a, a little bit of a, um, a sort of push and pull here, and we'll have to see where that comes out. I'm Ken Barry, no affiliation. Um, staying with the Ireland question for a second and the idea of the soft border, uh, I believe it's tr true that the Republic of Ireland has 70% of its trade with Great Britain. What about the economic seam that would exist between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland? Is that also a major uh, concern um, on the Irish, on the Republic of Ireland uh, side? Yeah, I think, look, I think the Republic of Ireland is obviously very concerned about uh, how Brexit pans out economically for itself. At the same time, there, there is a little bit of rivalry in the sense that Dublin is being seen as a potential financial destination uh, for people who may leave the city of London and uh, move there. So there isn't, you know, it's mixed in terms of their outlook on that and financial services are becoming an increasingly uh, important part of the Irish economy. Um, Again, for the Irish, both for political and economic purposes, it would make sense for them to have as loose a you know a border and as loose a connection with uh, with you know trading terms as possible. They don't want you know hard trade. They don't want those things because they, they are rather dependent on it. They would, I mean, ideally for them, they would want uh, Brexit, but with everything maintaining essentially, and they get some of the financial bits. Um, and look, and that could happen. That could happen. So for them, that's the uh, the, the prime objective, I think.
What do you see as Corbin's future? And what if, God forbid, he made it into number 10 Downing Street? Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. I'll probably spend a lot more time in Washington if that's the case. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, on, look, on a serious note, what's his future? Well, as I said, he's captured the, the, the mood of British politics at the moment, the mood of fairness, um, equality, uh, change, you know, sort of the idea that we must spend more, that sort of issue. If those ideas are prevalent at the time of an election, if the Conservatives uh, do not respond, then there is a chance as crazy as it may seem, that he, he might get elected. It's, it's possible. So his future might be to be prime minister. However, however, the next election is scheduled to be in 2022. That's an awfully long time away. Uh, five, you know, let's imagine the government does make it to 2022. At that point, there'll have been five years of this. Political moods will probably have shifted at that point. Does he really have the answers to the pressing questions of the day? No, I mean, his, his ideology is a rehash of the 1970s. Um, it was put very well, by the way, um, by one of our papers last week, talking about the, uh, the, an you know, the anniversary of the Bolsheviks coming to power. Most people looking at that would regard it as a, as a, as a, a tragedy in terms of what happened over the next you know, eight years with the, uh, uh, the murders, the, uh, the system crushing the life out of people, etc. But for the leadership of the Labour Party today, it is seen as a moment of optimism and hope for humanity that the Bolsheviks took over. Is that really something that in 2022 is going to play out in British politics? I don't know the answer. Now, the, the, the issue will be, of course, will he stay leader of the Labour Party? Will that? I think the members, as I said, will stay loyal to him. Um, the question is whether moderates leave, what happens internally in that party, or whether they stick it out to a point where he does lose an election, um, and then they see what happens afterwards. But I think the Labour Party isn't an, isn't an existential moment in its history because it may cease to exist as what it once was, which is a broad-based party of the left and become increasingly a, a party of the hard left. We don't know the answer to that. I think we have to look and see how that goes. Uh, were he to become prime minister, I think a lot depends on, on, on the constellation of how he gets that. Like I said, it is very difficult to imagine him winning a majority because of the electoral arithmetic. Does he therefore have a coalition government? Does that rein him in? I don't know the answer to all those questions, but we are, you know, it's conjecture, we'd have to understand. The one thing we do know is the closer you get to that, and the more he stays high in the polls, people will expect to understand what a Corbyn government means. And that may be the moment again when they go, hang on, that's not what we thought. We thought he was a nice fluffy man who just spoke about, you know, friendly items. We didn't realize he wanted to nationalize everything and, you know, tax us to the hills and, you know, destroy the country's economy. But that, that's essentially what, that may happen as well. So it's a, it's a debating point for the future. Hudson Trustee Dr. Margaret Whitehead, who we're delighted to have here. Thank you very much for being here and for your wisdom and your sage comments. Um, we have we have uh, such an interesting view of Theresa May in our press here, and um, I'm just wondering how much of her leadership do you think that this view that we have of her here is accounted for by the torturous situation in the parties? that you've described this morning. Well, could I, could I start by asking what the view is? Well, um, it seems confused, um, uh, almost as confused as ours. <laughs> um, and we don't have a clear image of her as a strong leader, uh, which I think we would very much like to have. And I'm wondering if you could parse all of that and tell us maybe that she is and that she's sort of um, in this swirl of politics, which you're describing. Uh, could you sort of parse that for us? 
Of course. Um, so I think the situation, of course, changed with the election. Before that, she was seen, I think, as a strong leader. People viewed her as being somebody who um, was going to get on with the business of government, who wasn't going to be distracted by um, you know, political events around her, uh, who was going to take a very command and control view of, the, of her own party and you know, kind of get things through. Now, that all came unstuck, unfortunately, for her in the election. And that's changed the view of her, obviously. And now she's seen as a weak leader um, who is being buffeted by cabinet around, you know, her party don't want her to lead them anymore, but they can't figure out who to replace her. Look, I think she's in a very difficult position. Um, you know, she caught, the damage was self-inflicted. She called the election, it was her choice. This all happened. And now she is in a situation where um, it is very difficult for her to, to enforce anything. Because how can you enforce things on a party which is so fractious, number one, which doesn't have a majority, when you've got the Brexit negotiations going on? I'll give her credit in this regard. She has, you know, she has tried to push those negotiations onwards. She has made it clear that is a priority. I'm not getting involved in the squabbling. I'm, in fact, staying in power in office. There were a lot of talk that she was going to resign after the election. In fact, you know, numerous accounts of what happened after the election. What made her stick in, I sense, was this tremendous sense of duty that she has, which is, I, you know, the buck stops with me. If I walk out right now, how is history going to judge me of having bailed at this moment in time? I recognize things went wrong, okay? I get that I'm in a weak position, but I've still got to make the most of it because that's the best for the country. And I think in that respect, people should give her credit in the sense that she's gone out there. She's uh, acknowledged her mistakes. She said sorry to everyone for the election, et cetera, in that way. And she's getting on with trying to deliver the one thing that she feels is necessary and essential for the country, which is a Brexit deal of some kind. Now, the challenge for her is, is that enough? When I say is that enough, is that enough for a program for government? We'll find the answer to that next week with the budget, I think, because that'll be the clearest sense of whether she has now an agenda for government as well as for Brexit. And if she can put an agenda for government together, I think public perceptions of her will change. Maybe not to the extent that she'll ever be a hugely popular prime minister, Okay, but maybe people have some more respect for the kind of person she is. She's a fundamentally decent person who wants to do the best for the country, but also as someone who they can at least have some sense of belief, understands what government is about and what you know, her role as prime minister is. Um, and if she does that, I think she can still be a successful prime minister, even if her time is necessarily limited because of internal dynamics within her party. But that's a challenge. We'll know more next week about that. Let me, let me ask you, you've known the last few prime ministers personally. How do, you, how do you stack them up as individuals? What's well, the first thought that comes to mind when, you know, let's say, David Cameron? Well, David Cameron was known as the essay crisis prime minister because what he would, you know, essentially he would breeze his way through things, as you saw with the EU referendum and the Scottish referendum and other things, and it would all be all right on the night because he was a quick study and he'd kind of do things at, at the last minute. But I think he had a, a reassurance about him that people liked despite his sort of very posh background, which is always endlessly spoken about in the British media, he had a, you know, a reassuring feel about him. Uh, and it seemed that he, and, and of course, don't forget, he, he did do a lot to detoxify the conservative brand, which in retrospect was you know, no, you know, no easy uh, feat, given what had happened beforehand. Um, I think the problem with Cameron was that he, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't study enough, essentially, for the big decisions. The referendum, he sort of fell into it. It was a glib promise. He then did it. Uh, the deal he tried to get with the Europeans wasn't a serious deal, and it all came unstuck because of that. But it took him a long time to get to that point. He'd been prime minister for six years by that point, 
and it had worked all right up until then. Um, but he, you know, his style was very, you know, was very much laid back in that way. Gordon Brown, in contrast, as you well know, was a, a very sort of brooding presence within Number Ten. A brilliant, you know, brilliant man in terms of his sort of um, understanding of policy, but he couldn't communicate it to people. Um, and, and so his problem was that he was unable to kind of get, you know, get all those ideas out there into a framework where people would go, hey, we actually like him. They didn't, people didn't like Gordon Brown, and that was his sort of problem. And of course, Blair was a consummate salesman, a consummate salesman, who packaged things, obviously, in such easy-to-understand terms and seemed to always embody the sunny optimism of, uh, of politics. I mean, it's worth bearing in mind with Blair. He won the 2005 election with a massive majority still of over 60 seats at a time when he'd been vilified for the Iraq war. That's extraordinary. There was a case for saying that had Blair stood in 2010 and not resigned in 2007, that he would have won that election, or at the very least, been the largest party. That says something about you know, the caliber of Blair as a, as a politician, maybe not as a, as a person or as a, uh, a thinker, but as a politician in that regard. So four very different characters who you've seen in that time. Fascinating. I mean, absolutely fascinating. Next question, Diana. Diana. Alan, if many people's worst fears are realized and Corbyn found himself in, the, in, in number 10, do you think a break could be put on the, and bearing in mind the makeup of, of the Labour Party as you described, do you think a break could be put on the growth of anti-Semitism? Um, the short answer to that is no, I don't think so, because I think unfortunately, um, whether it is connected or not, the, um, the rise of Corbyn and Corbynism has coincided with what can only be termed as an epidemic of anti-Semitism coming to the fore within the Labour Party. So there is little reason to assume that were he to become Prime Minister, that this wouldn't be you know, writ large. And I think the problem is a failure within the Labour Party to get to grips with, with, with anti-Semites. When someone like Ken Livingstone, who has been you know, so vociferous in some of the crazy claims he's made about Hitler and Zionism and things like that, isn't disciplined effectively, is still a member of the Labour Party, even if he's been suspended and will be allowed back in, you have to start questioning, the ser and, and many others as well, you have to start questioning the seriousness within which the party leadership takes this issue. And it's really quite extraordinary because Labour has been the party historically who have fought for um, you know, minorities of all kinds to gain acceptance within uh, the British system. It now appears that when it comes to Jews and maybe others, they're, no, they're not interested in this anymore. And worse than that, it seems that some of the people who've been most vociferous in their support for Corbyn have also been most vociferous in their anti-Semitism as well. So it, it's a difficult conundrum. What would, what would help is if the party leader took, you know, took notice of this and actually took it seriously. And rather than having whitewash reports into the problem, which you've seen on a number of occasions, actually takes a zero-tolerance attitude and starts expelling people from the party. That would give confidence there would be a break on this. Until that happens, however, and you have to wonder why it's not happening and why Corbyn allows this to persist within the party as an ongoing problem, you have to fear for the prospects of Jews in Britain should he become Prime Minister. Again, not because he will institute anything himself, but because he won't take action against it in the, in the way that would be required to compensate for the upsurge of it. Thank you. Thanks for your presentation. I just wonder if you can give us some description about your political process from local to national, whether that is elected or appointed. 
my, my concern is whether the government has maintained good record about a candidate, their profile, uh, whether the people have a really good information about candidates, and whether the government can give the candidate a good debate and a good record and televise or something like that. Sure. Let's ask about your own sort of, you ran for uh, parliament, uh, not in this yes. election, but in the election yes, before, in your own experience of... Uh... Well, so look, we, we live in obviously a, uh, a, an advanced Western democracy, so uh, that comes with obviously its, uh, its own advantages and disadvantages. The advantages are that, of course, you have access to information. So anyone running in an election obviously has access to social media and uh, you know, funding facilities to do things uh, to get the message out for what they believe in and what their party believes in. So you have the ability, obviously, to be out there as a public person. You'll be questioned by ordinary people, your constituents, or by uh, um, you know, local journalists and, and, and that sort of thing. And your positions will be clear because there'll be public things. It's no different to here in terms of how our politics works. Now, the system is, of course, a bit different, uh, primarily because our executive and our legislature sit in the same place. So it's not as if you've got the White House and Congress. You've got everything in the House of Commons on that bit. The judiciary is separate. But that's where you uh, have the difference. So the historically, that's meant the, an overmighty executive that can really dominate what happens in the governmental process. And we've seen that as a strength historically because it, it has meant clear government. You don't have to make compromises because a party is elected and it can put things through in that way. So um, it, it is a bit different, but fundamentally we have you know, local elections, obviously. We have um, elections for parliament that run in a constituency basis, much like your representatives represent a district or your senators represent a senate, uh, a, a state rather. So we've got the same principles on local and, uh, and regional and national government. Uh, the one big difference though, and this is important, is uh, it's nowhere near as expensive to run. So let me tell you, let me shock you with a figure that, uh, that we always go in Britain on elections. So in every given constituency, there is a spending limit during the election campaign itself. That limit, last time I looked, was about £14,500. That's it. Just understand that for a second. £14,500 during the election campaign. Could you imagine if that was imposed here? The difference that would make to your politics? It's just extraordinary. So as a result... You know, elections are cheap in comparison to here. They have, there has been more fundraising in politics, there's no question, in recent times. And on the national level, people are spending more, but it's nowhere near what you've got here. And that, that in a sense, is reassuring to Britain because it means there is access to politics in a, in a different way to here. Here you have to have money to be involved in it. There you, you still can, you know, have ideas without money in that sense. Let's go to Brian for the last question. Yes, I was a bit late arriving, and you may have discussed this topic a bit more earlier, but at the same time, uh, I'd be curious if you uh, care to get into any conjecture about the possible repercussions in terms of trade relations resulting from the passage of Brexit. Well, it, it comes down to what deal you get, doesn't it? I mean, the sense is, do, if you have a soft Brexit, so-called soft Brexit, where you maintain membership of the customs union, or of um, you know, the, 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 the trading bloc, then you have a very different trading outcome because you can't sign trade deals with other countries to if you go out and, or maintain one of these two things, uh, the single market or the other, you know, and you start negotiating with other people. So until we know 
what that looks like. Until we know whether we're going to maintain single market and customs union or one of those two or none of them, we're not going to know what the repercussions are in that. And in fact, there may be a case that, as I said, we won't be signing any trade deals anyone because we're just staying part of that trading block in a Swiss-type situation or Norwegian-style situation or a Turkish-style situation in some way, shape or form. Now, I don't know the answer to that. I, I think... Um, Part, part of what appealed to people about Brexit was the opportunity to, to actually trade with the rest of the world in a very different way. And of course, we do trade with the rest of the world now, but through the EU. It's not that we don't. The question is, would we be able to trade on better terms with them? And would there be an interest in a better way for that? Now, only the people doing the back-channel talks right now with those countries will have a sense. But I will say this. You know, it's been very interesting that Donald Trump has, um, you know, has been quite pro the idea of a trade deal, he hasn't said what the terms of that trade deal would be. I suspect, knowing how your president acts in negotiations, this won't be the most fun uh, sort of you know, trade deal for, the, for, you know, for Britain uh, to get through. So there are lots of unknowns in this process. Um, and the first thing we have to understand is where will we end up with the official negotiations? Because that tells us everything we need to know about where we go into other places afterwards. Okay, great. Alan, this has been absolutely uh, fantastic, very enlightening, and a terrific uh, debut to our uh, joint, uh, public debut to our the joint uh, the collaboration between uh, Hudson Institute and the Henry Jackson Society. We want to thank you. We want to thank the Hudson Institute events team. We want to thank everyone here. Look forward to doing uh, more of these in the months and years ahead. Uh, from everything you say, UK politics are only going to get more, shall we say, interesting going forward. So a lot to uh, talk about and uh, a lot to work on together. So thank you very much. Thank you. Okay.